Hey friends, welcome back and thanks for downloading this episode of How to Wow. It's a pop-up, it's a special with former monk Jay Shetty who's just published his second book, Eight Rules of Love. How to find it, keep it and let it go is out now. 50 million followers can't be wrong, so please do stay tuned. But first... Every morning, Tash, my wife and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance, which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multi-mineral, probiotic, green superfood, scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity and digestion. Deep seaweed green like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds, like no more than five or six okay ten tops to prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous and so here's how you can get yours simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day again simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow okay and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal athletic greens have given how to wow listeners a free year's supply of vitamin d and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go once again athletic greens.com slash don't forget how to wow okay let's cue over 30 minutes of magic from the joyous jay shetty on how to find it keep it and let it go eight rules of love Jay, just lean in there, mate. Yes, yes. How are you, pal? I'm so great. Thank you so much for having me. It's so awesome to be here. Your life is crazy. Uh, It is insane, and I'm so grateful and humbled by it daily. It's such a beautiful journey. Oh, you're doing such good stuff. You have the number one well-being podcast on the planet. Now, that wasn't in the plan, was it? No, definitely. you'll take it. Of course you will. (laughs) I'll take it. I mean, I remember when I had this idea for a podcast... And I had a company that was going to back the podcast and help us produce it and create it. They pulled out two weeks before the podcast launched. And the reason they told us was they didn't think it would be a big podcast. And they were going to own 60% of the podcast at the time too. And so it was just this incredible journey where at that point we were scrambling just to get the recordings in and edit and learning about the whole thing this was four years ago and so i feel so grateful to anyone who listens to the podcast and shares it i mean you're you're it's not been overnight because you're 30 mid 30s now i'm 35 35 um but your your sort of uh, experience of um, such profound fame has been brief, really. In in like, I mean, I've been doing this forever. <laughs> Lots of people you have in your pockets have been doing it forever. So I'm trying to catch up with you. So you're sort of new to that. How is that landing with you? Because you're. You're sort of six, seven years into being really well-known, I suppose. And it's exponential. Every day, it's sort of almost doubling in a way. Yeah, I started... I created my first piece of content 2016, 3rd Jan. So it's now been just over seven years. Not that long. But for 10 years before that, I did little events in London. So I used to have a society at university called Think Out Loud. And every week, I would speak about movies, psychology, spirituality, philosophy. And maybe one student would turn up, maybe five, maybe ten. And then for years when I was in London, I had an event called Conscious Living. And every month I'd do a session on philosophy and maybe 15 people would turn up. And so I've done this for 10 years before it was noticed. And the last seven years have just been a dream and phenomenal. And I I honestly believe that 
because I've done it for so long, I still feel I'm just doing the same thing. It's just a different scale. And so I feel very grateful. No, I can tell. I can tell. And it comes across, you know, and that's the way to be because that means you get more of whatever it is you have to give, which in your case is gold and may long, uh, may long be the case. Um, so, so you, you know, t- when one person does it, seven people turn up, 15 people turn up, it's great that, isn't it? Because, you know, you're cutting your teeth, you, you're getting things wrong, you're finding things out about yourself. You, there's not that far to fall. Uh, the less people there are, the fewer people there are there, the more sort of collaborative it is anyway. And then without sort of realising it, you, you've got so many flying hours in the bag. And then you, you, you sort of, you talk the talk, you, you, you know, you have this sort of fluency of currency of conversation. And what I love about your podcast, many, many things I love about your podcast, but what, you, it's so easy. You, you, you know, you may have an agenda. I can't spot it. You know. By the way, there's nothing wrong with having an agenda because hopefully it's a good agenda. But you're so free and easy with the guests. It's you know. Sometimes you say what you think. Sometimes you ask them a question. Sometimes you let them ask you a question. It seems seems to come to you so easily. Have you always been like that? No, so I feel like there's been a few stages. So my parents forced me to go to public speaking school when I was 11 years old because I was really shy as a kid. So my first public speaking experience, I was seven years old. I was invited to a school assembly to perform on stage and I had to sing a song from my tradition and I was dressed in traditional Indian clothes. Now I was overweight as a kid and parts of my body were kind of overflowing from this outfit that I had on and I started singing this song. I've never had a good singing voice. Start singing this song and the whole school starts laughing at me and then I look down because I forget my words and I can't read the words because my tears have smudged the the words on the page and so now I forget the words and now everyone's laughing more and then the worst thing, my teacher comes up on stage puts her arm around me and walks me off and everyone's just cracking up. And that was my first experience of public speaking, age seven. So I was a very shy kid. And my parents were so scared that I was always going to be really shy and quiet. And so they forced me. And so when I did seven years of public speaking training, that gave me great skills, but I still didn't use them. And it was when I met the monks and when I learned this wisdom that's over 5,000 years old and started getting fascinated with modern science and pairing it up and habit change and psychology and transformation, that's when almost the confidence came. And so when I'm having a conversation with people, I hope it comes across natural and organic because a lot of those people I have relationships with offline or I've connected with them somewhat. And so there's, there's a bit of a familiarity rather than a feeling of like, oh my gosh, I have no idea who you are and you don't know who I am. And and I find that that's a harder interview. Like even me and you, right? Like you interviewed me for Think Like a Monk and we really connected digitally. And today, like when I was watching all the excitement for me to come in, I was more excited. And then when you <laughs> greeted me today and it was, that's what makes it real. Like I want to be here and you want to be yeah, here. And yeah, I think yeah. that's what makes an interview special. See, it's funny you mentioned about not being able to sing because one of the things I find about your voice is it's so musical. You have such a musical <laughs> voice. It's almost like you're singing anyway. So I don't know what the heck went wrong there. Well, like, well, I grew morning. up as a huge fan of uh, rap and spoken word. And right. so I've always l- loved wordplay. And so I was a big fan of Eminem growing up. And I loved the way he used to bend and twist words yeah, and yeah, yeah. enunciate and pronounce. And you so have a I, bit of that going on too. I, 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 lo- I, love, I love words and I love language, but I can't sing. Right. Uh, well, it's, <laughs> it sounds like you can, to be honest. But anyway, um, <laughs> we'll move on. Uh, we'll get onto the book in a second or two because we've got to go to an ad break because we've actually got you on earlier than we usually get guests on because we love you so much. Um, couple more things so uh you talk about clients in your book for people who don't know what kind of clients do you have what do you do what is one of the other things you do for a living (laughs) so very few now but over the last few years i've i've built a strong coaching practice so in the beginning i would work with 
people that I would connect with, whether it be introductions or people in my community. Then I worked with a lot of CEOs and executives. And then now I generally work with uh, a, f- a few people who are living extremely crazy lives, whether it be high performance. Uh, people, some whether- people we've heard of. Yeah, and, and, and people, because it's a private coaching practice, yeah, yeah. Which, which you can't, of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, mention. But coaching's been a big part of my life that I've enjoyed over a, the last decade because I think when you can deeply help one person, it translates really well into understanding the human mind more deeply. And so I find that keeping a one-to-one practice is as powerful as a one-to-billion practice because there's, there's different things you learn by listening really intently to one person's problems that you won't learn if you're just living in this big scaled up social media world yeah i i think your journey right now it's interesting anyway but right now it's really interesting because you're in your mid-30s right (laughs) and things happen in your mid-30s you know you have this curve of experience and youth and they converge in your mid-30s and then your life explodes in a whole different way and if you think of it as a wine glass you know your 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 life so far has been built the base building up to the center of the stem and then what happens is when they cross it becomes like a sort of a goblet and that's where the wisdom and the wonder and the sagacity is in and it gets deeper and deeper and more golden and golden and you're pretty wise to begin with so i'm wondering where the heck you're gonna go you know (laughs) Your cup is really going to overflow us. No, I love hearing that. I mean, it's so beautiful. I, I think one of the things is I've always been surrounded by older, wiser, more experienced people. I think right. I've always done that since I was young. I've never had many friends my age. Yes. And, and I think there's a beauty in that. I think often we're surrounded by everyone who's kind of in the same boat. And even hearing that from you, I'm listening to you, someone with so much incredible experience and wisdom. I'm thinking, wow, that's so powerful for me to hear from you. And so I think there's a, there's a respect for wiser, more experienced people that's always been there in my life. And it's, it's what's made the difference. When I met the monks, it was the same thing. I was just like, these people know more than me. They know far more than me. And, you know, studying at their feet humbly and submissively is, is a really special experience. And I I hope in society we continue to do that. I hope we continue to look for the elder, wiser individuals because I think that's a part of society we've forgotten and lost. We'd be mad not to. Yeah. Crazy not to. Jay's new book, which the world has been waiting for. (laughs) Eight Rules of Love from the number one Sunday Times bestselling author, Jay Shetty. How to find it, keep it and let it go. I mean, you've set the the bar quite high for yourself with this one, haven't you, Jay? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I was so... It was so interesting because 14 out of 17 publishers that I met the first time around yes. told me not to call a book Think Like a Monk. Right. They said to me, Jay, no one wants to think like a monk. Don't call it that. <laughs> and we still called it that. And so for everyone who did choose to think like a monk, thank you so much. And here this time, I mean, it's a different book. It's a different journey. I, I really feel like my work wants to help people make the biggest decisions in their life. Yeah. And so Think Like a Monk helps you decide how you feel about yourself. And the next biggest decision we make is who do I love and who do I receive love from? And so that's what this book helps you do. Quickly about Think Like a Monk, right? I was having a giggle to myself this morning on the way in because I know that, you know, various interviews over the years has been pushed back, you know. Uh, you know, he was a monk for, for three years. Yes. And now you, you've had, you know all this, yeah, yeah, this yeah. playbook. And so so I, I think in the future you should, because you could say, okay, fair enough, you know. Um, how old were you when you became a monk? I was 21 going on 22. 21, right. So 21 to 24. So, you know, I'm not the cleverest person in the world, but that's, that's an eighth of your life, right? 
So you're a monk for an eighth of your life, quite substantial, especially you're. it's almost, I would say, half your adult life then, maybe more, maybe mm-hmm. most of your adult life up until then. But the older you get, the less it becomes as a percentage. So you were a monk for a bit, so you should reissue something. Think a bit like a monk. That <laughs> shut him up, That's genius. It? That's Come genius. On. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's the interesting <laughs> thing. Like, I think even that book, like, for me, it was really about celebrating the experience of monks who'd been monks for 40 yeah, years. Exactly. It wasn't even about my... It was about my three years somewhat, but really it was about the studies on monks' brains and, like, the incredible techniques and tools. It was more like a paying homage to their life. Yeah, I get it. I uh, get than it. even I, mine, yeah. I loved it. And um, Thank you. The people that had an issue with it, interesting. Just interesting. You Thank know, you. How much projection was in that, I suppose? Right, Eight <laughs> Rules for Love, Jay Shetty. Tell us about the four ashrams. Let's get right into it. Come okay, on. so I believe that we think of love as, like, I like someone and then you love them, right? Like, you kind of feel like that's how it goes. And actually, there's this whole period in between called learning, and there's four stages of how to learn to love almost. And so the first stage is preparing for love, uh, which is almost like connecting to the love within yourself, learning self-love. So it's how do I love myself? Then the second stage is practicing love. Practicing love is like, how do I learn to love someone else? We almost assume it's, we assume people know how to be parents. We assume we know how to love people. We, we assume these really big things. You don't assume someone knows how to drive a car, but driving a car is far more simple than being a parent or falling in love with someone. You have to take an exam for that. I'm not saying we need exams to fall in love with people, but the idea of there has to be some practicing. Uh, and then the third stage is protecting love. I think so many people in the world, unfortunately, go through heartbreak and pain and stress and people get treated miserably and abused and there has to be a part of us that protects love within ourselves. and then finally perfecting love getting to that stage where we don't just love our wife and our partner and our kids we love each and every person i felt loved by you when i walked in here this morning uh, and whether you call that kindness or whether you call it abundance or whether you call it just appreciation and gratitude i think there's a way of showing love to every person you meet in the world of commerce, you know, the playbook, one of the playbooks is, you know, you can you can ready, um, aim and fire. But then there's that great phrase, ready, fire, aim, because yeah. there's no such thing as the right time. You know, sometimes it works in business. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it works in love, <laughs> but not so often. Um, although we're also keen to be in love sometimes. We, you know, we go in with both feet. We borrow a foot and go with that foot, and, you know, whatever. Get all the feet in there. And then we have to go backwards, don't we? And sort of reverse engineer what it might be. Again, not dissimilar to the four stages. Yeah, absolutely. I think chemistry is something that we're all fascinated by. I was talking to a friend this morning and he said, oh, I'm talking to this girl, but I don't really feel any chemistry. And I was like, well, what does chemistry actually mean to you? Like, tell me what it actually means to you. He's like, I don't know. Like, it's just that thing. I don't feel that spark. And so I broke it down for him. The studies show that up until age 25, because our prefrontal cortex isn't fully formed, we make decisions largely based on feelings and emotions. And then after 20, which is where we really feel a lot of the spark. And you'll remember this. When you were younger, you felt more chemistry with more people. It was so much simpler. It was so much simpler. (laughs) And then after 25, you make decisions based on reasoning and self-control. And so after 25, we struggle to feel chemistry with people, which means when you date later in life, you don't find that spark as immediately. And so I think we've 
over-exaggerated and overrated this idea of a spark as opposed to character and compatibility, which is what long-lasting relationships are based on. There's loads of little side notes here, you know, sort of handwritten, which I love. Is that your handwriting? <laughs> is it? Where, where are you, you know, when you, you have all these oh, things yes, going yeah, on. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that yeah, your, yeah. Are they your notes? They are They are uh, little little bad sketches. I'm not an artist <laughs> either. I'm not a singer or an artist, so it's my, my ability to try and sketch, yeah. Uh, you reference your own life a lot, which is really important because, you know, there's, there's more signal there and less noise. Um, you talk about Rowdy quite a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us about the chapter with regards to your own relationship, as much as you want to, by the way. And tell, yeah. me, tell me to go and, and uh, take a run and jump. Uh, with re- reference to your partner is your guru. Yeah, absolutely. So this is probably, I think there's a couple of chapters that, there's a chapter on karma and I redefine what karma is and I think people will find that really interesting. But I talk about your partner is your guru, which if you read that, you go, no, my partner's annoying, right? Like, you know, <laughs> you know, no one thinks, oh yeah, my partner's my guru, I'm going to learn from them. And what I realize about, this, realize about this chapter is because your partner sees the most intimate version of you, because they see you in all your flaws and everything else, they actually get to be your best teacher because they're the one person you can't lie to, you can't hide anything from. Like my wife knows if I meditated in the morning or I didn't. My wife knows if I've worked out this week or I haven't. My wife knows if I've been eating sugar all day or, or being healthy. Like she's... <laughs> absorbing all of that and she's mirroring it back now when your partner's your guru the idea is you don't do that through criticism and judgment i think one of the greatest gifts my wife's given to me is she never criticizes me or judges me for my mistakes but she's she's a mirror yet that shows me all the challenges that i have and then I feel inspired to want to change, not for her, but change for myself. And so I think it's a really special idea of like, how can you use your partner to be really aware of your challenges rather than, and I'll give you an example, like, you know, my wife will call me out if she thinks that something's not an integrity or I'm not being authentic, or she'll call me out if she thinks I need to work harder on something. And I think that's a beautiful thing. We need to let our partners be people that can challenge us and make us better. But there are ways, aren't there? There because are. You have to pick your fighting style. Yes. I can't believe he's got a section, you know, pick your fighting style, identify your partner's fighting style and prepare for the fight. Set a time for the fight. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, so here's the thing, right? Like everyone argues. Every <laughs> single person in the world who's in a relationship will argue because yeah. there's no one. And you all have that friend that says, oh, we never argue, everything. And yeah. I'm like, well, then maybe you can't have uncomfortable conversations with your partner. So I learned this with me and my wife. I realized very early on that we fought very differently. So my version, which I called venting in the book, there's three styles. I call it venting, my one, which is I want to talk right now and solve this right now. Yeah. That's my fighting style. My wife's fighting style is what I call hiding. She wants to go away into her room. She wants to ignore me for two days. And then she'll come back and have digested it all and, you know, be able to talk it out or whatever it may be. And you won't be able to remember what it was about because that's our style. Exactly, exactly. And the thing that happens there is I used to think, well, because you want to hide, that means you don't care as much as I do. You're walking away from solving the problem, which means I care more about the relationship than you do which isn't really true. It's just that she fights in a different way. She needs time to digest, I don't. So now we meet in the middle and we say, look, you need two days, I need now. Let's meet in 12 to 24 hours and figure it out. And that creates a healthier balance rather than this issue that turns up. The third style I call is exploding, where someone goes, I just need to talk about my emotions. I want you to hear my emotions. And a lot of us look at that person and say, oh, well, just don't worry about it, get over it. But that's just their style. It's almost like, 
someone wants to fight MMA and you want to box them or you want to wrestle. <laughs> so when your fight styles are matching, you can't you can't really figure it out. So you have to have the same, not the same fight style, but you've got to be aware of how someone fights. And we were talking about it before because you were coming in. Often if you schedule, you know, a more sensible time to talk about things, not in the heat of the moment, they sort of figure themselves out anyway. They sound so silly, don't they? They do like, sound, they do sound embarrassingly pathetic. silly. Yeah, embarrassing. <gasps> and, and this is the point, right? We choose to fight when someone walks in through the door. And the research shows that in our normal human day yes. we can deal with seven things at a time when we're having acute stress that number seven drops to two to three imagine someone coming home back from work through the door what how many things they can deal with probably just about one yeah and all of a sudden they hear oh you didn't wash the dishes or you haven't done this or you know what about this weekend all of a sudden that person's triggered now you're fighting about something that you don't even care about yeah and, and you haven't talked about the real issue and, and the joy in taking a step back as opposed to taking a step forward and getting used to that space and that grace, that can become addictive as well. Yes. You know, and again, you're more in the moment. You can see, you know, you don't have to be 10,000 feet up in the air to have a 10,000 foot point of view. You well can, said. One step can achieve that, can't it? Well said, yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, expect, expecting love versus expressing love. I love this. Uh, yeah. Focus on receiving love and you'll experience less love. Focus on giving love and you'll experience more love. Try it, it works. Yes. I, I mean, that's the biggest trick of it all. I think love is something that we wish for, we wait for. We hope that the person's going to smile at us when we get on the bus. We hope that the receptionist is going to greet us, you know, in a, in a wonderful way. We hope that the person we bump into at work has good news. And it's almost like we're waiting for people. Waiting, to, waiting, waiting, waiting. Oh, waiting. No. And we don't realise oh. that you could greet someone with a smile. You could open the door for someone. You could say a kind thing to a stranger. You could say, I love you to someone else and I think when you lead in that way you don't realize that when you say I love you when you say I appreciate you when you say I'm grateful for you that simple expressing yeah. love means you're experiencing that loving exchange right there like we had when I walked in and so I think that's what I'm encouraging people to do is stop expecting love yeah because that is agony it's, it's agony it's exhausting even when it happens it's unfulfilling because if you get it once <laughs> you then go okay when's it going to happen next yeah. and if you busy yourself by giving it instead of waiting for it then you don't even think about it anyway you don't because you're feeling it the oh. whole time inside just want more and more people and, and you know what it is and, I'll, and, and I know we struggle with that we think oh that's a bit soft and that's a bit sentimental you know what it is I have too many friends who regret the last thing they said to a family member they yeah, lost totally. or regret the last conversation they had with a parent before they lost them and so you know, not to live life in a morbid or depressing way, but to live life in a way of like, I really value this person. I want them to know it every second they're alive. I think that's a good way to live. I agree entirely. And you never know, Sam Harris says, you never know when the last time is going to be the last time. Yeah. You never know when the last time you're going to play football with your mates at school because yeah. nobody says, oh, by the way, this is the last time. Those things just happen. And then in a few years hence, you go, oh, that was the last time. Yeah. You know, and Tash, my wife talks about that all the time now. Yeah. Let's, let's um, rewind to the start of the book. For this one over here, uh, for lonely see solitude um two versions of what could be on the face of it the same thing but not necessarily so so this is Sinead uh, Sinead HJ Sinead yeah. and you are enjoying a period of solitude yeah well no I was saying like for the first reading at the beginning of the book you talk about being alone um and often people will say to me are you lonely I live just me and my dog and the last year I've been working with a coach as well and I've found I've come to a place where I'm probably happier than I've ever been 
Um, you know, and it's like, I, d- I don't ever feel lonely at all. In fact, you know, I probably feel happier and like more, you know, what I mean? and the time I do spend with people is, is much nicer. But I also feel like, you know, from past relationships and devastation, all the rest of it, this is so important mm. to now to know that it's fine to be on your own and actually you can have I mean a lot of my friends who are married are jealous of the time <laughs> <laughs> well we start on our own don't yeah. we yeah. we sort of end up on our own absolutely yeah. you know. I absolutely. think it's such an important thing to so I'm really glad you oh, well I love seeing a real life example of it because I think it is so true and I think we've been made to believe that being alone means you're unworthy or inadequate and it's like oh well you know you turn up to a wedding without a plus one it's like oh poor you like you next like it's this idea that being single is a bad thing and actually when people do it properly like it sounds like you are which is wonderful you're actually feeling all the benefits of it and now if you were to meet someone if you ever want to do that you'll never settle for less than you deserve because you already know how much you deserve which is so beautiful that's exactly it because I think previous to this I didn't have self-worth I didn't really have like that that feeling that I didn't love myself so every partner was completely the wrong choice for me yeah and you were lumping it all on them as well weren't you exactly and then also the devastation when that relationship ends because you're like well that just compounds the fact that you don't have any self-worth so it's such an important step I'd say for anyone unless you've got it you can't transmit what you haven't got I've got got these two friends uh, Marta and Lewis uh, who who are are deeply in love now which is beautiful and they both have spent time alone doing their own work and incredible people and she put up on our Instagram yesterday she wrote um, we don't make each other happy we make each other happier and and I love that. Like that to me was a great idea of the you know they're not looking to each other to make each other happy, yeah. making each other happier. And I think that's what a relationships about. What about codependence versus co-independence? Because I think me and my wife were very co-independent. Yes. And I think that does work. Was codependence? I mean, it can work, but it's not as healthy. Yeah. You know. And often I still feel on my own. I don't feel alone. Yeah. But I don't. You know. I feel you know on my own a lot when I'm not really with Tash. I think about her sometimes, but mostly I'm doing my own thing and she's doing her own thing as well. Yeah. And so. But it's all Disney's fault, isn't it? <laughs> it does go back to the movies, yeah. The, the knight in shining armor and the damsel in distress. This. And yeah, all of these ideas that have been planted into us, like someone's going to come and save you, which means you need saving. Like, and so we grow up with this subconscious idea that, oh, one day my prince will come and save me from this terror. Dressed and as a frog. Yeah, dressed as a frog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just all these ideas. And, and, and ultimately the, the concept that, someone out there is going to fix me and I'm broken. And, and I think we carry that around subconsciously. We don't say in those words. And I agree with you. Like my wife and I, because of our work schedules, spend a fair bit of time apart. And by the way, that's our lifestyles. But there's a lot of people who'd say, well, well, we, I don't travel for work, Jay. I don't, I don't, I'm not on a plane for work. I'm not moving around. I'm with my partner every day. I think it's so important still within that to take out time by yourself monthly, even if you are in a relationship. And that doesn't have to be like a weekend. It can be an hour, it yeah, can be yeah. two hours. I'm not talking about taking a retreat. It's just doing what you can with what you have and where you are. It's so interesting, isn't it, Vas? Because you, you and I, I think we have quite similar marriages, mm. but, you know, and all week in a way we have a functional sort of business organizational uh, relationship tash and i because we've got four kids we've got it all going on wow like, i get up at four we've always slept in almost always slept in separate bedrooms you know we prefer it that way it's better that way and it's like we're working towards a show and the show happens at the weekend and the weekend we get together and then we have our explosion of fun and that's our movie that's our little disney you know <laughs> mini epic but the rest of it it's it's sorting out the catering it's getting all the actors there at the right time it's messing with the script you know if, if 
the Disney approach works as long as you focus on the production, not the movie. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I love that. I love the fact that you 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 do all of the quotes, you know, the love <laughs> quotes. You had me at hello. I wish I knew how to quit you. You to me are perfect. You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. By the way, this isn't Jay's advice. This yeah. is what he's pointing out is <laughs> yeah. wrong in the world of show business. Yeah. Um, I also had a go at um, a younger self-meditation. Oh, I love that. When I, when I started. It was, it's quite early in your book. And it was great. Thank do you want to talk you. a bit about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. This is probably one of my favourite things to do. And it, and it actually changed my life. The reason I even started creating the work that I do today seven years ago was because I did this meditation and I realised I would have been really unfulfilled if I didn't. So in this meditation, you close your eyes, you spend some time and you revisit your 10-year-old self. And you ask yourself, what do you need to say to your 10-year-old self that maybe your 10-year-old self never heard from family, from parents, from friends, from teachers? What is that that they haven't heard yet or they haven't digested yet? And you say it to them because we don't realize there's a 10-year-old inside of us right now. Most of our adult tantrums are all from our 10-year-old inside of us that was never pacified or satisfied. So tell your 10-year-old self everything you wish you were told when you were 10 years old. And then take a moment and say, what advice do you have for me? What wisdom do you have for me? What did I forget that I knew about myself at 10 years old that I left behind? What wisdom do you have for me? And if you just take a few moments to do this, I lay it out in the book, as you said, I promise you, you leave there with a really profound thought from your 10-year-old self, not from me, not from some other power, just from within yourself, you'll be able to guide yourself. My favourite letter was the one to your current self, because I've experienced that before, and it's really great, the practice, and it's all in Jay's book, if you want to follow it. But... A letter to your current self. I've never heard that before. Like, thanks, mate. (laughs) Sorry about today. Sorry about yesterday. Uh, By the way, we're stuck with each other, aren't we? Your current self. That made me really emotional. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've also done the opposite, which I love as well, which is almost fast forwarding till age 90 or 100 and having a conversation with yourself and saying, well, what am I going to regret at that point that I didn't do at this age my current self now? And the thing is, you can still change it. You can still do it right now because you're not 99 or 100. So good, Uh, man. Which which part of the book are you happiest with or you... Has most people wanted to talk to you about. It's the one bit that stands out more than So anything. there's a couple. There's the karma chapter that's big. There's the partner is your guru that you asked about. Um, I think the loneliness one is a big thing. I think there's a lot of people responding to that right now. Like that's that's at a big reception. The one that you kind of mentioned this with your wife, uh, your po- um, purpose comes first. Yeah. And so that chapter is really interesting for a lot of people because I'm saying that purpose comes before the person, yeah. but for them as well, not just for you. And I think people often think, yeah, my purpose comes first, but I should still be their purpose. And I think when you're trying to become someone's purpose, it can be really unfulfilling because that's where that codependency takes off. And so what I encourage in that chapter is help your partner live their purpose and help yourself live yours. And I promise you, then you'll bring this incredible energy to your partnership. But if you become your partner's purpose, that's where the clinginess, that's where the difficulty, that's where the challenges all start to come in. When you had that six, seven days of reflection, when you had a bit of a wobble because what people were saying about you. So your wife was in London. Yeah. You were on your own in Los Angeles. So you weren't lonely. It wasn't solitude. 
it was somewhere in was it somewhere in the middle yeah i would i would call that like and i and i really believe being in that discomfort zone of you're trying to get to solitude yeah. but you're currently at loneliness but i find that if you outsource that and a lot of us do this when we have a challenge or a big decision to make we ask everyone on our whatsapp group or our text thread right we message everyone and go what do i do with this problem and you crowdsource the idea and now you've got like 70 responses from all your friends <laughs> you don't do any of them because 70 is too much and you're still in the same but boat. it fills the time but it fills the time and it makes <laughs> you feel better and my approach is well let me make sense of it myself yeah. if i want to get to solitude if i want to feel confident in myself i'm gonna to have to get there by myself of course i'll take a bit of wisdom and insight but i've got to walk that path and so that's what i do if i'm ever struggling with anything i go inward rather than outward initially because if i go outward i'll get lots of other people's projections and opinions and ideas everyone's ultimately projecting their own limits or their own ideas onto you whereas when you take a moment and that's why in my book i'm not just giving you advice and saying this is what jay thinks you should do or i think i'm saying here's what i want you to do for yourself go inward and sit with that thought what do you think your thoughts would be your experience would be your takeaways would be if you went back to the monastery for another three years now if i went back now yeah for three years do you know what? i don't know if i at this point have I, when i was 21 going on 22 i had this like youth of i'm ready to do anything and everything and I was just like, whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it really well. Now, if I was to go back, you know, it's so interesting how your mind gets more like judgmental and like critical. And uh, but I do go back every year for a couple of weeks. I find it to be extremely therapeutic, therapeutic. It's nice to be in a place where no one cares about what you're doing. Like no one cares. They don't really know. They're not really aware. And so they they look at you as just who you are. And so almost sometimes it's nice to be seen forgetting your this layer of your life that you live by yeah and so to be only seen as your first self which has no other coverings is that a release for you it is a release it is a release because it connects you to it's a liberating feeling yeah, yeah. because it connects you to the self that is living through all of this right like imagine going back to just who you are and being seen as who you are the, the human self all of us need that uh, in the monastery there's no mirrors uh, so you, we lost sense of our physical identity. So you can only understand the so deeper identity of yourself. Mirrors. Oh, darn those mirrors and those cameras and a reflection. Lakes, ponds, <laughs> silver foil. Because um, <laughs> they always say, which, which, which way should you wrap your chicken? Foil, shiny foil outside or, or dull foil outside? Oh, dull. Wow. So you can't see, see yourself. Yeah, oh, exactly. Wow. Um, I know that you've been talking about the next five years. We've only got a minute left, Joe. Yeah. Sorry. but yeah, um, all good. My wife, spookily, my wife asked the same question to me on Saturday around the fire, fire pit. She said, you know, five years time, where do you want to be? And I, I thought, has she been listening to Jay? Because you talked about it on a podcast recently. Yeah. And she said, what, what, what do you think? Where, where do you want to be? I said, I just want to be, I just want to be here. Yeah. I don't, I don't want more of the same. I just want the same. Yeah. And I really, really meant it. I think I meant it. What do you, five years time, you've thought about it a lot in 30 seconds. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I don't, th I, I agree with you. I don't think it's about, I don't have an external vision of it. I just want to make sure that I'm never living life on a treadmill and I'm never living life just doing the thing you're expected to do. I think that's, it's almost like you work so hard to do something that you're not expected to do and now you're going to go backwards. Yeah, and yeah. I always want to live a life that's truly authentic to where I am. So break the mold now and again. Yeah. Get the mold. That worked. Absolutely. Smash it on the floor. Exactly. Let's, let's get another one together. Yeah. Wow. So good. Do you tell a story about... Um, 
somebody a student making something didn't they when they asked to make something oh yeah 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 that's Car- it was it carving it's an old was it? Zen what would you like to carve it's a zen yeah it's a zen parable where a zen teacher asks a student uh, carve carve me the buddha cuz he, he knows he's good, a good woodworker yeah he's a good woodworker so this person carves this beautiful buddha made out of wood gives it to the teacher the teacher looks at it for 2 seconds and chucks it away and the idea was that he wanted him to carve the buddha in his heart not Within. not carve a physical thing so and i think we're so obsessed with building external physical greatness but really what's being asked of us is to take that internal path. Right, we're out of time. Um, we really are over time now. Anything else you want to say to people? No, listening? no, no. Thank you so much. And please come and see me on tour. I'm going to be in London at the Palladium right, uh, May 23rd and 24th. Okay, that's Jay Shetty. Come back and see us, man. Thank you, mate. I would love All to. All right, how to find it, keep it and let it go. Eight Reels of Love from the number one Sunday Times best-selling author, Jay Shetty. This will be another one, no doubt about that. There we are. That's the wonderful Jay Shetty. If you like that, don't forget to rate and review this episode. And why not dive into the How to Wow archives for more wisdom from the likes of Richard E. Grant, Bono, and Mini Driver to name but one, two, three. Okay, ta-da. Sorry. Ta-da!